Welcome to the Refuge Weekly Podcast. We are a church in and for the city of Orange in Southern California. The heart of Refuge OC is to introduce and reintroduce people to a clearer vision of God. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit us at refugeoc.com. And now, here is our latest message. So I want you to get a Bible, whether it's your phone, whether you have a, a, an actual one with pages in it. Um, I'm, I got mine right here. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, because that's where the story is for us this morning. I, I told you it was Pentecost Sunday. Actually, Nikki mentioned it earlier, but I made reference to it. And Pentecost Sunday is actually a pretty big event in the life of the church. It's much like celebrating someone's birthday. Many of you have had kids' birthdays recently, and you've done the whole drive-by thing. Like, it probably would have made sense for us to have a drive-by birthday for the church today, because this is actually the instance where the church gets its start. The disciples have been hanging out. Like, imagine yourself stepping into the, the scenario and the scene with me. The disciples have been hanging out since Jesus has died and been raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. And he has ascended. Remember Ascension Day? Sean mentioned this last Sunday with us. And he has ascended to the Father yet again into heaven, knowing full well that he will come again because we're not here just to get to heaven. God is actually bringing the reality of heaven and his kingdom to us so that he will redeem and reclaim everything that is happening. But it's Pentecost Sunday where things changed forever for the church and for you and for me. And so the story takes place in Acts chapter two, verses one through 21. And I want you to turn there with me. So again, if you've got your Bible, if you've got your phone, however it is that you're reading, we'll even have some words on the screen with me this morning. But we're reading just the first four verses. And then I wanna kind of tell what happens in the rest of the passage. Because there's some good stuff that really, really informs how you and I live and consider how God is active and alive in this season. And so here's what happens as we begin chapter two of the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And most people would say in an upper room. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were seated. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So that's the setting. And we're told it's on the day of Pentecost. So for Luke, who's the doctor, who's really good with details, who's writing this book, this, 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 uh, this letter, this book for the New Testament Christians, this book of Acts, and recording really well, and the details for him are not missed. For Luke, he wants to, everyone to know that it's on the day of Pentecost that the Spirit came. Sometimes as Christians, we assume that the day of Pentecost was just for the Holy Spirit, but actually it had been around for generations and for millennia. Because people had been celebrating the idea that God had been so good to them in the agricultural sense. And so for the day of Pentecost, it was one of those pilgrimage days, those feast days. And actually, I want to have an image for you. It's a feast day where people would actually go to Jerusalem. There are many feasts on the Jewish calendar, but three of them were what we would call pilgrimage feasts. And so, so many people would show up in the city of Jerusalem to worship at the temple, to have sacrifice, and to celebrate this feast time. But it's the day of Pentecost that Luke points out this is when the Spirit decided to meet with the disciples in that place where they're together in the upper room. Because they have been wondering, well, well, what do we do now? Jesus has kind of left the scene. And he said things like, just wait, wait for the comforter, wait for the one that I am sending. 
And so they're in a season of waiting, much like you and I have been in a season of waiting right now. But because it's been a pilgrimage feast, so many people are in Jerusalem. And so there are so many people gathered in that city. Some people have estimated to the tens and hundreds of thousands of people would show up on pilgrimage feasts like this throughout a given year. Because Jerusalem and the temple was the center of life for everybody in that part of the world at that time. So these people that have come from everywhere speak different languages. Well, who shows up? Well, let me just give you the list. And, and if you have your Bible open still, you can still read the list. But it goes on to say that uh, beginning in verse 9, we've got Parthians there. We've got Medes and Elamites. We've got residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Egypt, I'm sorry, excuse me, visitors from Crete, uh, visitors from Rome, excuse me, Cretans and Arabs. That is who has gathered in Jerusalem. So you can imagine if they've come from all of those places, so many of them speak different languages. But it's this day, on the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit comes into the room. We've got a sound, like the rushing wind. We've got tongues of fire that is resting on everybody. And we've got, um, yes, the tongues of fire and the symbol of fire and the wind. So what do these three images have to do with us? And so how do we make sense of what is happening on that day of Pentecost for an understanding of how that informs and kind of impacts us today? So those three elements, well, the wind element that we get in verse 2 definitely has um, a connection to, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, you get to Genesis, and when God formed the earth, at least the poetic understanding of this, when we get the writer of Genesis telling us and describing how God put things into order, the poetic nature of it is that God breathed it into action, breathed it into creation. And there's even the moment when God finally puts the jewel of his creation, which are people, into creation. It is his breath that gives life. So it's the same kind of breath and the word for wind that we get in the New Testament here in the book of Acts that calls to mind for so many of us that when the Spirit shows up, it's not a new thing on this day alone. The Spirit has been showing up for generations all the way back to the beginning. Because if God is putting things into motion, He is putting it in motion with His breath and His wind and His influence and His power. And then we get the image of fire. This fire that shows up. And we know fire to be a symbol of God, right? We know that when Moses, back in Exodus chapter 3, when he encounters a bush that is on fire and it does not burn up, we know that God is in that bush and he's talking to Moses and encouraging him, hey, would you consider following me? And I actually need you to go back into Egypt because you've left that place. You've hightailed it out of there. You've killed someone. You're a murderer, Moses, but your life is not done right now. And I want to actually take you back and I want you to get my people out. But the voice of God comes in fire. We also get the image of God coming in the place of fire when he is leading his people through the desert, the wandering in the desert. They are led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. So fire often represents God's presence. And then the idea of these tongues. And then they speak in different tongues. And remember, if there are tens and hundreds of thousands of people that have come from the known world at the time, they are all speaking different languages. They're not getting together and just speaking something that's similar. They are speaking their own language from where they're from. If that whole list that I just read to you is true, there's a lot of languages going on. But in that upper room with those disciples, something happened. 
They began to speak in other tongues. They began to speak in spirit language that unified them. They began to, what most scholars would say, is reverse and turn what happened back in Genesis when we hear about a story called the Tower of Babel. And if you remember that story, it's, it's an interesting one. Go back and read it. If you've got kids in the house, it's even a story for them to consider. These people who wanted to get to God, they decided we're going to build this tower that is so high. And God recognizing that they weren't really focusing on what was important. They were just focusing on themselves because they assumed if they could get to God, they would be like him. And so God decided to disperse them and separate them. And he did that with languages and cultures. And there's this separation that happens in Genesis when we get the story of the Tower of Babel. But in this moment, in the upper room, when the Spirit comes, when the wind flows, when the fire image is there, and the speaking in a spirit language, it's reversing what happened many, 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 many years before. That's good news. Because when I read this story, I get a sense that God's in the business of of unifying his people. And so if I were to put a title to the sermon, here is my title for the day. What happens in the upper room doesn't stay there. And it can't. What happens in the upper room doesn't stay there. And we don't want it to stay there. We don't want to just read this story, this nice, cute story, some would say, in Acts and be like, oh, that was for them, but that's not for us. I have no concept of what you're talking about, Brenton. But for you and for me, when we are hit with the reality of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we open up his scripture and we get to places like Acts chapter 2, we can't help but see that God is alive and well And he hasn't abandoned his people. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he wasn't abandoning them. He was saying, I'm actually going to send someone who's going to help you. And that's where we get the Spirit. And the Spirit gets described as the helper, as the counselor, as the sustainer, as the comforter, but also the challenger. But there's a sense that when the Spirit is in play, there's a unifying action that happens. And that's what we see in the upper room where these people have gathered And they are speaking this language. And actually, there are people outside the window who are hearing what's going on and hearing their own languages being spoken, this spirit language that is unifying to a group of people, but at the same time is causing a ruckus and a roar outside in the crowd. Like, who are these people? I thought these were just common folk. These just these these regular people. Like, how is it that they know our language? And then people who have no idea of what's happening just assume that these people are drunk. Not sure if you've ever come across a crowd of drunk people before. I was around uh, some friends yesterday. We went uh, uh, out on a boat to take our, my son fishing with his friend. And uh, there were places where we neared the shore where we wondered if there was crowds on the shore that might have been drunk. So we know what that looks like. We know the excuse. We know how sometimes we'll put that on people like, oh, they're just acting, acting crazy. They've had too much. But then one of the disciples decides to stand up and set the record straight. And if you continue to read this passage of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, Peter stands up and sets the record. And he says, hey, these people aren't drunk. Actually, what's happening here was foretold long ago by the prophet Joel. And what Joel said back then is coming true to this day. And here is how the quote happens for Peter. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what Peter proclaimed that day. And we're told because of what he said that day, this first moment for Peter to get it right. Because all those times where Peter steps out on the water, gets it wrong and begins to sink and lose faith. And Jesus says, hey, ye of little faith, would you just trust me? And the moment when Peter turns his back on Jesus after he is crucified and taken to the Roman authorities, and eventually he is succumbed to the moment when he hears the rooster crow on the third time, that he's been the one who's denied. And then that moment on the beach when Jesus decides to serve Jesus a breakfast and says to him, Peter, I'm not done with you. So when Peter, along with those disciples in that upper room, are filled with the Holy Spirit, he has... He actually has the compelling nature and talk to be able to give to people and say, these men aren't drunk. These people are filled with the Spirit, and here's what God is doing. And we're told that they added thousands to their number that day because of what Peter said. But there's a unifying factor when it comes to the Spirit's work. There's something interesting that I came across this week in my study on this passage, and I want to give it to you. Because uh, most people would say that that image of fire, the tongues of fire, and some people, if you were to look it up on Google searches, you would see they would put the disciples in a room and they would have the image of fire right there. And even the image for Pentecost Sunday is often an image of fire. There's one New Testament scholar who wanted to take it up a notch because he noticed that if you do some simple archaeological research, you can notice something else about that image that spoke volumes to people back then that we may miss if we're not seeing what's really going on. And he said that if you took a group of Roman coins, and if you looked, and I want to give you a picture here, we've got some Roman coins that archaeologists, archaeologists have dug up and have surveyed and looked at. You'll notice in the two coins that are on the right side of your screen, I'm going to zoom in for you if you don't mind, you can see that above the heads of the people in these coins is actually the image of tongues of fire. And you're like, I don't know about that, but for the primitive coin makers of the day, this was the image of fire. And the image of fire that was placed over the heads of these people mentioned and had to do with the fact that they were divine. This is what Caesar would do to himself. Or the people who would say, we're actually, I'm the son of God. And so they would put the tongues of fire over them on these coins. And these would be distributed all throughout the Roman Empire. And people would see, like, they've got a coin. And you're like, oh, look, it's the emperor. Oh, he's got tongues of fire. Oh, he's the divine one. He's the one with all the power. So the New Testament scholar that I read this week said, actually... When Luke describes that there are tongues of fire, it's not just an image of fire because God is the image of fire. It's actually taking what was known to the world at that time, that, oh, the one who was chosen, the select one, the powerful one, the emperor, who would often put tongues of fire above them on coins. That image was getting used for the people in that room, the disciples in that room. So the question that you and I have to do is, what does that mean? Well, I see it as meaning that the people in that upper room, because of the Spirit's influence that day, are marked as sons of the divine. Not in a way that we would say they're gods now, but because they have been marked as ones of the king. 
And so we walk through life with the confidence that if I am a follower of Jesus and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, it is way more than just about speaking in tongues. I want to be filled with the Spirit that it compels me to act and to love. That is what I have been struck by this week. Because this image is not just an image on a coin that we throw away and you're like, oh, that's a nice thought. But I want to be marked by the king. I want to be marked by the true king. The one whose kingdom I want to support, whose kingdom I want to proclaim. And what a week, what a week to proclaim this news. It's been a hard week. I want to do my best, if you'll let me, to respond to what's happened in our world. The storyline for America has shifted from our response to coronavirus and to COVID-19 and the realities of that to the ugliness that took place this week and the brutal death of George Floyd. And if you'll let me, I'm going to kind of meander here on a few thoughts that have been swimming in my mind because we as a refuge team have been wrestling with this, wondering what is it that we could possibly post that would make sense? What is it that we could possibly post that would let the world know that we are disgusted by the brutal death of George Floyd? And it's not easy because sometimes social media posts get misconstrued and it becomes an anger thing. Well, why aren't you mad at the rioters? Yesterday, there was a, a protest that happened in Old Town Orange, and we got word of it, and actually there was a subtext and a sub-conversation happening with some churches and pastors in town that said we were going to show up at 4 p.m. yesterday when that riot or a protest happened. Uh, it wasn't a riot, excuse me, uh, uh, when the protest happened, and uh, just to be able to walk the streets and pray. But about an hour before that, around 3 p.m., we got notice that the Orange Police Department said we actually would advise the pastors don't do that this time because we're not sure what this may turn into. Because as you are aware and as you are seeing on your social feeds as well as your news feeds, that it's been an ugly week in America. But it's been an ugly reality in America for more than just this week. I want to tell you, um, I was hit by this uh, in the last couple of weeks because of some books I read. And this is really the only way that I know how to make sense of it. And I want to kind of work my way through these thoughts. And if you'll stay with me, I'd love to share some things. Um, because I read a book with my daughter, who is 14 years old in eighth grade, and she had to do a report for her school. And it was a book called Chasing Lincoln's Killers. And it was a kind of like an investigator's look at the storyline of John Wilkes Booth and the other co-conspirators who were with him and killed President Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. And I was, I'm always struck by that storyline because I've been to Washington. I've, I've walked by Ford's Theater years ago. I got a chance to go into the museum and you see what happened on that night. But I was so amazed that there was more to it than just some random person who took a gun and killed the president. Um, there was actually deep-seated hatred for what Lincoln stood for. That's why he is killed. But then after I finished that book with my daughter, I finished a book that I had started over a year ago. And you'll understand why it took me this long to finish it is because it's a thousand page book on President Ulysses S. Grant. And I had seen this and last year for my birthday, my wife gifted that to me. And I had read the book all the way through when President Ulysses S. Grant was just a general, general in the army, and he led the Union forces and he carried out the mantra and the themes of President Lincoln as his top general. 
And so when I got to the end of the Civil War portion and I had seen the battlefields take place and I had heard the story and read the story of when General Robert E. Lee surrendered at, at the Appomattox Courthouse, I kind of put the book aside. But when I finished that book about Lincoln's conspirators with my daughter, I decided I needed to finish the book. And so in the past seven or eight days, I finished the last section of the book and I trudged through it. But I was amazed because the storyline that we're experiencing today goes back to then. And there are people that have been posted that 2020 looks a lot like 1992 when you think about the Rodney King riots in L.A. Or it looks like even some of the other stories, the Ahmad Arbery story just from weeks ago. And then we think about what took place in America in the 1960s by the revolutionary and radical leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King. But I was amazed to, as I read this book that the policies that he served as a general to thwart the spread of slavery and to say that slavery was no longer going to be a reality. It's actually President Grant, when he became president, is the one who helped the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments to the Constitution actually uh, take place. And these are the ones that give rights to African Americans and to black people in our country. And this is a hard one for me because I, I'm, a, I'm a white guy. And I, um, I've grown up in a world, in a society where I am the beneficiary of that reality. And it's not easy. I grew up in a home that my parents championed the cause that it wasn't an issue of race or color. But I also remember as a child, um, generations beyond my parents actually said things to me when they would describe a person, a black person or an African-American person, they would use the phrase that darkie. And even that, that sentiment and that thought came across when they would even describe people of, of, um, of Asian background. And uh, they would say that slant eye. And so it's as if our culture has been predisposed to segregation of all kinds. And we have not done a great job. And so I want to stand with Christians and members of the kingdom who this week are saying what happened to George Floyd is unacceptable. And as ugly as this week has been, we are still a country that is so divided and it's not easy. Uh, for for a few years now, we have been um, we have been told that we're in the business of making America great again. And last night, I revisited the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, who stood at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial back in the early '60s, and proclaimed his "I Have a Dream" speech. And at the end of the the speech. He actually gives a critique of what does it take to make America great? Because the quote he says is, if America is to be a great nation, like that's the litmus test for him. If America is to be a great nation, we need to be a nation that doesn't judge people by the color of their skin. And unfortunately, that reality is all too real. You would think by 2020, we would get it better. I want my kids to grow up in the kind of dream reality that Dr. Martin Luther King talked about. But it's hard, but it's gonna take people like you and me. 
I loved this book. I love the story of Abraham Lincoln, who's a white president who said slavery's wrong, and so he issues an emancipation proclamation. These are things that kids in our schools today have to memorize. But it can't just be a history lesson. It has to be a reality. And I love the fact that it's President Grant, just two administrations later, is the one who carries it forward. And the last couple chapters of the book that I finished this week about President Grant tells us that when he died, the entire nation mourned, including our black brothers and sisters, because it was him who carried the flame of freedom. He's the one who took up the mantle that Lincoln had and said, we got to do this better. And, and I want to say that we live in a world where we're getting better, but obviously this week we see that it, we haven't. And I'm sorry. And I think we just don't need white presidents from the past to do the right thing. We also need current white presidents to do the right thing. And we need current white people like me to do the right thing. And I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry to my black brothers and sisters and others of color that this, this country hasn't been the bastion of freedom that you thought it should be. Thought it should be. But when I hit Acts chapter 2 and I see the unifying nature of the Spirit that gives them one language to speak, yet it's recognizable to so many, I want to say that is what we need to proclaim. We need to be led by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit. And again, it's more than just speaking in tongues. It is having a radical understanding of God's love for His people that propels us to act in so many ways. It happened in the early 1900s at the genesis of the Pentecostal movement, of which refuge is a forebear. Because back then, in the early parts of the 1900s, there were these people who gathered in Azusa Street in downtown LA and saw the Spirit descend, much like in the upper room back in Acts chapter 2. And there were all kinds of people of varying races and backgrounds and culture and they got together and they worshiped and what was said about 1906 was that it was the spirit that erased the color lines and if we have learned anything from this week it is that we need the spirit now more than ever and we need his help to guide us forward so that we don't propagate a system that puts people down and we definitely don't propagate a system where we can knee someone to death. That is unacceptable. It's unbecoming of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Does this mean I support the protests and the riots? As if that's the only option for me? I don't think violence is the thing but I also don't understand. And I want to say that as honestly as I can. I don't understand what it means to be a person of color. But I want to be a better white person to do this well. And I'm struggling through this, and you may not exactly like what I say, and you may have issues, and we can talk about it, and I would love to talk about it. But we have got to do a better job of proclaiming the reality of the kingdom and God's spirit that actually brings people together more than divides that actually values life more than takes it away. That's the spirit 
worth following. That's the spirit worth being engaged with. And I want to be led by his spirit more than ever this week. So I want to pray over you. And then I want to actually tell you about something pretty cool. So let's pray this morning. God, these are not easy issues that we talk about. Thank you for how your spirit has been leading and guiding for many, many, many years. Thank you for that, that how you came to the upper room that day and what happened there doesn't stay there. You propelled the early church to go out from that place infused with your spirit and being guided by it so that the world would look different because churches would begin to pop up all over the place. And churches like Refuge don't want to just get back to church as normal if we don't have a pulse on our culture to proclaim what is righteous and just and good. Help us to be the kind of church that responds. Help us to be the kind of church that apologizes, that needs to be the kind of church that we lead the charge when injustices are all too often May we be the ones who call it out and say, that is not right. And this has been a week where it has not been right. But would you be the one who brings peace and calm and redemption and reconciliation? Oh, how we need you, God. We need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. We believe in community and would love to connect with you. If you have any questions or would like to speak to a pastor, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at RefugeChurchOC. We hope to see you again soon.